Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. Decisive Point welcomes Gregory Aftendillion, author of Hope versus Reality, The Efficacy of Using U.S. Military Aid to Improve Human Rights in Egypt, featured in Parameters Autumn 2021 issue. Mr. Aftendillion is a senior lecturer at American University and an adjunct professor at both Boston University and George Mason University. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad we're able to do this. My pleasure. Let's just jump right in and talk about your article, Hope versus Reality, the Efficacy of Using U.S. Military Aid to Improve Human Rights in Egypt. Your article examines the approaches employed by the Obama and Trump administrations regarding U.S. military aid to Egypt, and it proposes practical steps that can be taken by policymakers and the military personnel on the ground to advance U.S. human rights values. What was the Obama administration's approach? The Obama administration was not pleased by the military coup that took place in early July of 2013 against Mohamed Morsi, who was then president of Egypt, and Morsi was also a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. This is not because there was a so-called conspiracy between the U.S. and the Brotherhood, as some people have alleged, but because Morsi was elected in a democratic election and the U.S. was still trying to say, you know, we support the democratic transition in Egypt. But there were millions of people in Egypt who opposed Morsi and supported the military coup against him. So the Obama administration didn't want to use the word coup because that would have automatically cut off all U.S. aid to Egypt under the so-called Leahy Law, named after Senator Leahy of Vermont. So the administration tried to walk a fine line, trying to say that Morsi should be released from prison. The Egyptian constitution should be restored. It had been suspended by then Defense Minister Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. But then things came to a head in mid-August of 2013 when the Egyptian security forces cracked down very heavily against two protest encampments by pro-Morsi supporters. Over 800 people died in a single day. And President Obama went on national television to condemn what happened and he canceled the Bright Star military exercises that were scheduled for September of 2013. And he said there was going to be a thorough review of U.S. assistance to Egypt in light of this repression. There was discussions within the Obama administration about what to do. By October of 2013, they decided then to suspend a substantial portion of U.S. military assistance to Egypt in the hope that this would lead to less repression in Egypt and a more inclusive government. This suspension occurred over a period of about 18 months, but then by March of 2015, the Obama administration decided to lift its suspension, and I think it did so for two main reasons. One, the human rights situation in Egypt didn't improve, and in fact, it arguably got worse under Sisi. And then second, Egypt still faced a security threat in the Sinai Peninsula from an ISIS affiliate. That was the Obama administration's approach. And so then the Trump administration came in, and what was Trump's approach? Well, Trump, even before he became president, he met Sisi on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly in September of 2016. He praised Sisi very much, and then he invited him to the White House. 
in early 2017 after he became president. And there seemed to have been no real pressure on Egypt to improve its human rights situation. The only case that we know of is when Trump did intervene to release from prison an Egyptian-American NGO worker, Aya Hijazi, and her husband, who were arrested on bogus charges. There was a number of human rights groups and many members of Congress who weighed in on having this couple released, and Trump decided to ask Sisi to release this couple from prison, and they were later received in the White House. But that was like a one-off thing. Um, it didn't really improve the human rights situation in Egypt. And then there wasn't really a concerted effort by Trump to do that. But surprisingly, in August of 2017, the Trump administration suspended about $195 million in military aid for two reasons. One was because Egypt had security ties to North Korea. A lot of this is sort of outside the public domain, so we only know bits and pieces from the press, and that upset the Trump administration. And then two, Egypt had a new draconian NGO law that was very restrictive. So for those two reasons, the aid was suspended. However, this suspension ended 11 months later in July of 2018, and some unnamed State Department spokesperson just cited the need to maintain strategic ties to Egypt, in essence, and that aid was restored. So you have two cases where the Obama administration and the Trump administration both suspended military aid for a time. But my point in the paper is that it didn't really lead to an improvement in the overall human rights situation in the country. This is why I titled the paper Hope Versus Reality, because the hope is that in some circles in Washington, if you suspend or cut military aid, that would be a pressure point on the Egyptian government, and then they would follow the U.S. advice to ease up on human rights problems. But that did not appear to be the case in both instances. Let's talk a little bit about the values-based approach to USAID that you talk about in your article. What does that look like, and what are the implications for the U.S. Army? I make the point that there, there may be moral and strategic reasons why the U.S. should cut military aid and transfer that aid into civilian economic aid, because to do nothing in the face of large-scale human rights abuses, I think, would hurt the United States from a moral standpoint. And it doesn't help when the United States is you know, touting democracy around the world for the U.S. to do nothing. My point in the paper is that from the U.S. perspective, it makes sense to cut some military aid from our own moral and strategic position and don't expect the Egyptian government all of a sudden to fall down and see to U.S. wishes. But this has to be done from the U.S. perspective. I also point out that there is a role for U.S. military officers in this thing that I propose, that because the Egyptian military is so prominent in Egyptian society, military officers run a lot of businesses. They also get appointed to governorships throughout Egypt. They're really the, the main force in Egyptian society. So U.S. military officers may have more of an influence with these Egyptian military officers 
than actually U.S. civilian diplomats. And my point is that sometimes U.S. military officers will hear from their Egyptian counterparts, you know, it's foolish to pursue a human rights policy in Egypt. You, quote unquote, don't understand Egyptian society, quote unquote, Western values on human rights should not be applied here. My point is that U.S. military officers can play a role in actually addressing some of these issues privately with their Egyptian counterparts saying that, you know, Egypt is a signatory to the UN Convention on Human Rights and the Egyptian government should abide by international human rights norms. Not everybody in Egyptian prison is a terrorist, as the the Egyptian government often portrays them as. And there should be kind of respectful dialogue when U.S. military officers encounter their Egyptian military counterparts. I say in the paper, this is not going to magically turn things around in Egypt in terms of the human rights situation. But I think down the road, it could have some dividends because as these military officers in Egypt rise in rank, they'll be much more influential in the decision-making processes in their country. And perhaps in getting this type of feedback and interchange with U.S. military officers will have some impact on their thinking about human rights. I also point out that, you know, this will take the U.S. military officers a little bit outside their comfort zone because this is essentially a political issue involving human rights. However, my point in the paper is that they should receive training. They obviously receive training from the U.S. military before they go overseas, but they should also receive training from State Department officials in the Near East Bureau as well as the Human Rights Bureau to prepare them for conversations they may have with their Egyptian military counterparts. The U.S. Army War College, as well as other professional military educational institutions in the United States, do teach the value of human rights to foreign military officers when they come to the United States for training. So it's not so so much out of the ordinary for these type of discussions to take place. Thank you for joining me today. This was an insightful conversation. Thanks. My pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode of Decisive Point and would like to hear more, look for us on Amazon Music, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and any other major podcast platform.